listening to Learning Now Radio, bringing you the best news, views and interviews from the team that brings you Learning Now TV. This is Learning Now Radio. So on this episode of Learning Now Radio, I'm delighted to be speaking to Phil Wilcox. He's founder of Emotion at Work, a speaker, consultant, but more importantly than that, he's an emotion geek. So Phil, welcome to Learning Now Radio. Thank you, Lisa. I'm really excited. Excellent. Oh, I'm glad, I'm glad that you're really excited. So that the um, we have to choose an emotion for this podcast. So excitement will be the uh, emotion for this. In fact, I'm going to take, take a slight detour, Phil. And um, my, my sister, who suffers terribly from vertigo, was saying to me that one of the ways in which she handles it is rather than feeling fear, she tells herself she's feeling excited instead. I don't know if that's something that you use as well. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I think they're, they're always kind of synonymous with each other, fear and excitement. And, and part of that, I think, is because of the um, sort of the physical physical sensations are often quite similar so in in both fear and excitement you can get kind of the butterflies um it's interesting i think with with fear people report more coldness whereas in excitement it's more energy so i think the 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 kind of butterflies aspect um can be uh, attributable to kind of each of those emotions but when when we ask or when i say when we when i've uh, the studies that i've read that ask people how the you know how they describe the physical sensations of fear they describe a lot of coldness um whereas excitement tends to have more energy with it instead um but they're they are, they're often quite kind of um similar in terms of the, the way that they're looked at definitely well, and that links really to the area that I wanted to focus on with you today, um, Phil. The reason why I've enjoyed so much speaking to you when we've you know met at different events and things is that one of the things I'm particularly interested and mindful of is that um, I know it sounds like a bit of a cliche, but you know change is the norm. But the rate of change and the um, as it were the onslaught of um, stimuli, I think are giving us a challenge that perhaps we haven't seen the likes of before, certainly at the rate and pace. And of course, fear and stress will be associated with that. So Phil, from the huge amount of research and consultancy that you've done, what are the main areas that you're tackling at the moment and why? So I think I think part of the difference in the pace of change is the... Um, is the ease of access to information. So I don't necessarily ascribe to the fact that the world is changing any quicker now than it was before. I think the change is just different, and I think the change is more openly accessible to everyone. You know, so whereas now the you know, globalization and and or social media, you could argue both, have created a context that means that information is rapid everywhere and but what i mean by that is it's global information that's rapid and everywhere so uh, a human a human's ability to take in information is the same as it's always been you know we were not we haven't evolved to a point over the last say 10 years where we can now take in more information than before because we have the same limitations that we had then the difference though is the way that that information gets to us and I think because because of the globalization and because of the speed at which information is available and the openness that information is available, it means that we have access to much more information much quicker than before that potentially 
we could deem to be more threatening from a societal perspective. Whereas I think the change in the in historically, even like 10 years ago, change within organisations was happening, it was present, it was there, it was just a different type of change to what we're talking about now. And, and technology and or globalisation and or um, you know, the internet and social media, I think, have just made our availability of data much more. So I, I don't necessarily know if, if there is more change now than there was before. I think we're just we're getting it in a different way does that does that make sense yeah i'm i'm well aware phil that what we've done is we have or i should say i have funneled us down a road of looking at change and emotion and making those synonymous with the two and i I like your point with the fact that you know obviously change is is always present and well and it always has been you know i mean anybody that's ever decided to you know pick up a bit of um a Confucius would see that there's any number of writing, ancient writings on the fact that everything changes. I suppose the thing that I'm most mindful of right now, though, is the nature in which organisations and job roles and the essence of employment is shifting so much. Are any of those issues, I suppose, Phil, have they influenced you wanting to focus on emotion at work as a really key agenda for organizations and their health and their profitability and of course the health of the individuals that work in them so i think that um there's been some societal changes um as well as some and which have then impacted organizations but also organizations then have impacted um kind of humans and people too so let me articulate that a bit better um i think what what the say what the financial crisis of 2008 onwards started to do was to create a a, a, shift, a a more substantial shift in the narrative about what people want from work you know the the idea of a um, the, you know, the classic idea of a job for life just didn't really stack up anymore um the 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 period of austerity that followed that as well i think it has really made people question what do they you know to, to quote the spice girls what do they want what do they really really want um and and I think that's bringing some real emotive challenges with it, because those questions, whilst they're being asked at, at, at an individual level, they're also being asked, I think, at an organisational level, you know, thinking about things like purpose. You know, we've seen a huge rise in organisations exploring the role of purpose in work. And you can't explore purpose without exploring emotion, because if you want somebody to connect to your purpose, if you want somebody to <clears throat> to feel connected to what your business stands for and what it does, that needs emotion engaged in it. And that is a very different kind of MO to the command and control cultures of the 90s, early thousands in that way. You know, the idea that we could just tell people what to do and they'll do it and they'll swallow the they'll swallow it for a salary or they'll swallow it for a career. I just don't think it stacks up anymore. You've got um society in general plus individuals saying actually we want more meaning, we want more from our jobs than just a job for life. We want to feel like we're contributing in some way and that's why you're seeing a rise of organ- you know if, if you think about i can name a whole host of them so if you think about tom's you know the foot the foot the shoe maker you know the, with the with their philanthropy plus business which is we want to make great shoes but also if you buy a pair of shoes from us we'll, we will donate a pair of shoes to somebody that needs it you know that 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 idea just wouldn't have been entertained a decade ago what you're going to give some of your you're going to to give shoes away to people when somebody buys a pair of your shoes why would you do that whereas i think now um that's much more of a um 
people connect and that, and that resonates with people a lot more. I think what's interesting, thinking about the journey that learning has taken over the last few decades and technology, and obviously their, their interrelationship, of course, but if you look at Absolutely. them both, I think what's interesting from what you say there, Phil, is that um, just as with learning in order to gain efficiencies and to hopefully be able to prepare people better, we deployed technology in the hope that more would be better. And what you were saying about, you know, people want to feel connected to the organisation. I think it's interesting that and I'd, I'd like your view on whether you think there is any validity in this argument that on occasion organisations can obfuscate the responsibility of creating an organisation that is connected and people feel supported by saying let's put some connecting technology in there. So yes I think so um, you know so what what, you're, what, what I would argue organisations are trying to, to do there is to put some technology in place to, to fulfil a symptom as opposed to addressing a need. You know, so if we, if we think back to Peter, I never had to know how to pronounce his surname, whether it's Senge or Senji or Sengi. I'm never I'm never sure kind of what it is. But if you think back to his kind of his book on the fifth discipline, and how long ago was that written? I can't. I, I, I'm not sure, but I know it was. I, I so do I know? I feel like it was a long time ago, at least a decade ago. Um, and you know, the attributes of what he talks about from a learning organisation, they you know, those ideas have been out there for ages. Yet you're you aren't. Sorry, let me try that again. So that idea has been out there for ages, yet very few organisations do that well. And that's because I think in terms of what you're talking about just now, using the, what happens is people use technology as a way to make that connection, whereas that's not the connection that people want. You know, what they want is to be able to say, if you want to create a learning culture, if you want to create a culture where people are driving their own learning, where they are actively engaging in their own learning, there needs to be a reason. And technology isn't a reason. You know, so if you want me to drive my own career, then you need to help me connect what I want in my life with my career and then give me the tools to allow me to do it. And that may be through technology, but you giving me technology isn't going to help me find that meaning. You help me find the meaning and then give me the, the tools and resources to allow me to do that. Then you are likely to get a learning culture. Put a load of technology in place to help people connect. That's not going to get a learning culture. That's just going to get that's just more stuff that you're implementing because you feel like you should. And I think to be fair on technology for a moment, for uh, the last thing I would want to do is demonise that because, you know, it's the heart and soul of what I do. Um, and I, if you look at a lot of organisations that put a huge amount of effort into purpose and finding meaning in work and being able to take responsibility and be able to collaborate, actually, it's some of the technology providers that are often the best at that. So I certainly wouldn't want the message to be here that it's technology is bad, far from it. Um, in fact, I think it's in those organisations that perhaps aren't quite as savvy on the messages that you're talking about where it could be that oh is there a tool to answer this rather than the heavy lifting of really taking care of this issue and I suppose that's really where we ought to go next Phil is you know your specialism is in consulting with organizations to help them tackle these issues where do you start and what do you do um <clears throat> So it, there's a few different things. So, so a big chunk of my work, especially in the last year, has been around culture. Uh, has been around how how can we find out how people feel to work for our business, um, and how can we do that in a way that isn't a survey. Um, and as I say the word survey, I kind of wrinkle my nose up at, at it because I, I have surveys have their place, um, but for me in the world of culture, 
they, they've got some limitations as well. And for me, there's like an over-reliance on them. So we have an annual survey and then we have a pulse survey and then we have a, a special edition pulse survey. And for me, we just, we're just we too reliant on one channel of, of data gathering that has limitations and issues with it. Um, and what I'm finding is organizations are saying to me, can we, is there another way? Is there another way we can find out how people feel about working for our organization that doesn't involve um, a survey and there is so one of the techniques that, that I use is called corpus linguistics which is a where you analyze big big sets of data so it's not quite big data in that way but it's where you analyze big data sets of words and then you you look at what the patterns of words tell us so um, for example I've done a couple of pieces of work this year where I've interviewed a cross-section of the workforce so that can be the exec middle management frontline if it's a if it's a geographically spread organization then it can be people from across that geography as well uh, and then I've interviewed them about how it feels to work for the company so I asked them questions like tell me what it's like to work here or um, when you go home and talk about your day how would you you know how do you describe it um, what are some of the things about working here that you really want to hold on to? What are some of the things about working here that you'd be willing to let go of? Questions like that. And then what I'm interested in is the responses. <clears throat> but I'm not interested in the sentences that people use. Not directly, anyway. What I'm interested in is the words that they are using. Because you can analyse that then to um, look at how people, the, what's called sentiment analysis. So you can do an analysis of the sentiment that's behind the word. So you can look at types of words or categories of words so for example um one of the things that i look at is pronoun use so when people feel connected to something or close to something they will use much more personal pronouns they'll use i me my us we whereas when they feel more detached or distant from something they'll use many more third person pronouns so them their um you know, them, them and us type language so what can be interesting is looking at how do different populations use pronouns. So I did one piece of work with an organization who had been implementing a culture change program that was about empowering the middle management tier. So when I looked at the language that the middle management tier used, they were using very, very few first person pronouns. And that was a, a red flag for me to say, that's really interesting. If these people really felt empowered and they felt like they owned and drove the culture in the organization, I'm surprised they're using so few first person pronouns. And then when I compared their pronoun use with the, um, the executive team's pronoun use, they were almost poles apart. So the executive team used majority first person pronouns, some third, whereas the middle management team used majority third person pronouns, some first. So even in that, just in pronoun use gives us an, an insight into the, the extent to which people feel connected to the business. Now, that's just one data point. You know, within that particular example, there were uh, eight to 10 data points that were of interest. And when you started to look across the data points, it started to paint a rich picture of culture. But I wanted to give you just one sort of example that would help bring that to life a little bit. Oh, I think that's absolutely superb. And I can see how that would appeal across um, operational disciplines as well. I think having that that data focus is something that um, really helps to then I, I can see how you can kind of start to extrapolate that and say, okay, well then look, if we were to compare populations or even uh, perhaps across um, the organisation or comparing it and uh, benchmarking it to other competitors or other similar organisations, I'm imagining then, Phil, what you can start to draw are some conclusions uh, around productivity 
around staff churn, um, around uh, brand, around efficiency, all those sorts of things by looking at those emotions and like you say, and the use of pronoun and the amount, the amount at which people feel they can influence and own the work that they do. And have you seen any evidence of that then? Have you been able to kind of start to make those connections along the value chain? Yeah, very much so. So uh, with a with a different organisation, um, one of the things that really stuck out was um, was verb use. Um, and there were real patterns in some of the, the language that was being used in, for things like react, reactive, reacting, reaction, knee jerk, panic. Um, and, and again, when I looked at that kind of class of words when comparing the exec versus um, the non-exec part of the business, the exec hardly used those words at all, whereas they were very prominent in the non-exec data. So that gives us a really interesting perspective on on the culture and then what that allows us to do is to say well how does how is this how are these um uh, these points that the data is telling us how are they supported or challenged by other data that's out there because this is just a single data point you know this isn't a silver bullet or a magic wand that's going to solve all the that's going to tell you everything but it's something that we need to check and validate against other data sources you know because if um if we're saying that in a particular population they feel like the culture is like this how does that manifest itself in things like churn in things like productivity and things like performance and things like um uh, responses and attitudes to change or even just capturing anecdotal feedback so it very much helps kind of give a, a an idea of where to go and look and where to go and look more and then you that's then the what you then can monitor those things that you're looking to either ch- to support or challenge the data and the hypothesis that you're creating are the me- things that you measure and, and monitor as you go forward and I'm acutely aware, Phil, that our listenership are probably very much on board with this because of the type of roles that they're involved in and yeah. the fact that they're listening to this in the first place. So when they are thinking, right, we need to speak to Phil about this. We need to look at um, what sorts of, like you say, hypothesis we want to test, what sort of projects we want to put in place to analyse particular areas of the business for whatever reason, whatever their burning platform is. How do they persuade their peers or their executive board that this type of work is worth investing in? So there's two there's two bits to that really. So one is the um, it's more objective than um, so if there's a spectrum of objectivity, this approach is further along um, that spectrum. Than other solutions. So what I mean by that is often when you get when uh, so I, I know when I used to go into businesses and help with culture diagnostic work, it would get applied through my filter. So the methodology that I'm describing isn't revela- you know, it's not revelation. Go in, chat to people, and then analyze what they, you know, look at what they say, identify passes of themes and play it back. The difference is what I used to do is it would it would run through my filter. So I would go, okay, that's been a really common theme and that's been a really common theme. Whereas here I'm not there's no filter that I'm applying because the the information that I get is transcribed and then I analyze the words that are used. You know, so by looking at it from a text-driven point of view, isn't this isn't my filter applied to it. I can, you know, I'm counting how many words, I'm looking at how unique those words are, I'm looking at the way that language is used differently in different populations. And this isn't my um, you know, filter through my biases. This is what the data tells us. So it's got, for me, it's got much more validity than, 
you know your classic kind of cultural diagnostic through via consultancy route um, because it's very much more data driven and the other thing that sits alongside it is you know you mentioned comparisons earlier on one of the comparisons I find really fascinating is when you compare the way that people talk about the business with the way that the business represents itself so for example analyzing um, what a company's intranet is says you know looking at because there's a there's a there's a few applications out there that can rip content off a website so it can rip text off so quite easily takes very little effort put the url in and it'll rip the words off the website you can also do it for an external website um so one piece of work i did was analyzing the external representation so what language do you use when you're creating your brand and your representation to the big wide world what about internally on the internet? And then what about if we then look at the way that people talk with each other about the organization and looking at the, the way that those different identities in a way are created and how the language indicates the stance and the way that the businesses um, sets itself out to be perceived is a fascinating one. And I suppose the key issue here that organizations are trying to address is that they need an engaged workforce. It seems like an incredibly obvious thing to do, but in the world of reward and remuneration or workplace design, whatever you're try- however you're trying to achieve this, it's that emotional connection that trumps almost all others. I know that there will be roles in which actually the remuneration part, we used to do a lot of work with this, Phil, when we uh, when I used to do work with uh, communities of practice, looking at the various different motivations, you know, how do you compare research scientists to city bankers? But even so, there comes a point, even with the most highly remunerated role, that if that's the only lever that you're using, that burnout will occur. So the emotion stuff is not soft stuff. It's incredibly important stuff if an organisation wants to be productive. Absolutely. And um, and I think that one of the shifts that, that I've seen, even in the last probably five years, is, and, and again, this isn't a universal shift, but what I'm seeing in, in, more, in a more variety of organisations is organisations being genuinely interested in how people feel about stuff. Now, one of the challenges is that often when the pressure then is on, that kind of goes back out the window again. Um, and that's that's partly to do with the culture of the organisation. But the the interest and the curiosity around what can we do with and about how people feel, because that is such a, a huge part of it. Um, you know, it's such a huge part of, you know, engagement, of productivity. You know, if you're, if you are... Um, if you're, I'm trying, I'm picking my words carefully because um, I don't want to take myself down a rabbit hole. So, because um, if you think about things like passion, so I have a, a bit of a bugbear with, with, with the, people will say, I want passion, but I don't want frustration. And for me, they're part of the same family. You know, they're both part of, of the anger family because passion is about having the energy and the determination to, to do something and do it really well. And that means that you've got a goal that you want to achieve and there's some stuff that's getting in the way that's stopping you not doing that as well. And that that's the same thing that will trigger frustration. They're part of the same family. So, they're, you know, they're, they're quite close to each other in that way. So we need to accept that we want emotions like anger in the workplace because they give energy, they give fire, they give drive, and they give um, a, a real push 
for something. Now, you know, they can be applied in both a constructive and a destructive way. Um, but I think the the idea of actually we just need to engage people on a cognitive level. We need to get people to think, oh, I, I know what I'm doing. I can I can cognitively see how what I'm doing now contributes to what the organization is trying to achieve. That will get you some way. But if you can get people feeling like their work makes a difference, that their work matters, then that is is where, for me, where you can really start to do something with that. So if you're listening to this and you're interested in pursuing this, thinking about how you can start to apply it, Phil, where can people find you? Uh, so you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Phil Wilcox. So that's W-I-L-L-C-O-X-O at P-H-I-L-W-I-L-L-C-O-X. Uh, and you can find me online at emotionatwork.co.uk. That's fantastic. Well, Phil, I really appreciate your time. I really hope that people will seek out your work because, uh, as you said, this is really important stuff for individuals, organisations and society. And that sounds really grand. But as you said, this doesn't need to be difficult. It just needs to be well thought out, well planned and properly followed through. Absolutely. And, and you know, for me, I always look at you know, I, I picked the, the name Emotion at Work really, really carefully, because for me, it's about we're interested in emotion at work within people you know, within an individual, within you or within me, where, you know, when we're working or when we're not working, we're interested in that. But we're also interested in emotion at work between people because, as, you know, even even in the age of robotics that may be to come, humans will still be involved. And when humans are involved, there's emotion going on between them. And then finally, there's emotion at work within organisations as a whole because organisations are entities within themselves. Um, and we, you know, I, I, it's important for me that we look at emotion across those three domains. You need to work with people, with individuals in relationships and then across the organization as a whole and if you can crack if you can focus on that then i think that that gives you as an organization and as individuals that gives you a huge step forward in terms of doing work that really matters for people well phil this is absolutely one of my favorite topics of conversation so thank you so much we could go on we could go on no thank you very much lisa i appreciate it it's been good it's been really good that's great. Thanks for thanks for uh, appearing on here and hopefully we'll get you back soon. It'd be really great, Phil, as well, to for you to share some case studies with us going forward as well. I think the next uh, few years as organisations are starting to really take a hold of this, there's going to be some really exciting work coming out. And I know a lot of the, the companies that you're working with at the moment do some exciting work. So we'd love to have you back in the future. I would, I would be honoured. I'd be honoured to come back. Wonderful. Well, thanks very much for joining us on Learning Now Radio. Thanks, Lisa. Learning Now Radio. All the best news, reviews and interviews. Well, that's all we have for this episode. I hope you found some useful takeaways to jot down and use back at work. And please remember to share Learning Now Radio with your work colleagues, your Twitter followers and, of course, your Facebook friends. So once again, thank you so much for listening to Learning Now Radio. Please help us to spread the word by subscribing and rating us on iTunes. And Lisa and I look forward to you joining us in two weeks' time.